Hey, good morning, everybody. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew, uh, no big surprise there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 and pick up uh, around where Dad left, uh, left off. And let me get my ducks in a row here. I know, I don't trust these people. <laughs> the first time I talked with my mask on, it was by mistake. Today it's on purpose. Um, I don't trust you, and, and if you're smart, you shouldn't trust me. All right. But thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, let's see. We'll pick up in verse 46. We're going to... Um, actually pick up in verse 51, but let's uh, get a running start. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what, they, what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Uh, we're going to uh, look at this little section again. I did, uh, uh, spoke about it uh, last week, uh, but it's worth reemphasizing and uh, we know the story of the the curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, we looked when we studied Exodus at the construction of the tabernacle. We know uh, the veils there. And um, uh, so this will be review. So this veil that they're talking about, uh, what was its purpose? What was the purpose of this veil? Exactly. It separated the Holy of Holies from everything else. And now there were actually a couple of veils I learned. There was the one for the Holy of Holies, which is the one that is being referred to here. And then there was another veil out from that that would have been visible. It separated the, the main part of the temple from the, from the courtyard. But... Who got to go into the Holy of Holies? A high priest. And how often did the high priest get to go? Once a year. And what did he do when he was in there? The prayer for the people, and that was the sacrificial atonement that 
made things okay for the time being between God's people and God, right? He, we went through Hebrews. You know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of, or atonement, forgiveness of sin, right? Um, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and then he said what was going to happen? Three days later, it's going to be raised back up. So this destroying of the temple, when you break through the inner sanctum there, you've, in essence, destroyed the function of the temple right then. But it had the, happened at the same time that the earthly temple was being destroyed. But this made, made a new way. This split the open and in essence is top down we know God was basically saying there doesn't have to be a priest anymore uh, an earthly priest uh, there doesn't have to be um, a barrier between me and you um, God's basically saying I'm ready for you to come to me because now there's a different way for you to come to me now this next section I I've, I mean, how many times have we all read the, these, this verse 52, and I've never really thought about the practicalities. So there was an earthquake, right? It says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So how does this work? So there's a couple ways you can read this. So the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So you could think, okay, there was an earthquake, the tombs were open, and the bodies of the saints were raised. If you read it that way, they basically hung out in the graveyard for three days until after his resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, and then they went into the, to Jerusalem and showed themselves. That would have been kind of bizarre if that's the way it worked, <laughs> right? Um, most people, though, think that that these were separate, in, separated in time. Um, if you look in your Bibles, New American Standard has a comma, basically, after the tombs are opened and so forth. Um, I use the ESV. It has a period. The tombs also were opened. And then the next sentence, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So it puts that in a separate sentence. The NIV, the RSV, they all do something similar, kind of recognizing, or at least trying to make the point, that Matthew wanted this detail in here. He wanted to connect what happened um, at the time of Jesus' death with what happened in the resurrection to those people who were there in the, in the tombs um, and chose to put it here uh, is, is a way to understand that. But um, uh, that doesn't affect a lot. It doesn't, there's no problem with reading it that way, but uh, it kind of makes more sense to me. But I had not really thought about the alternate reading and 
that would have been kind of odd. Um, and again, and we'll get to this in a minute, um, when the tombs were opened, what would people have seen? Dead people, right? So you had three days of a reminder that these people were dead. There's going to be a reminder that they were alive in three days, but if people were passing by, they would see, oh, the earthquake opened up a lot of these graves. I can see the contents here. All right. Verse 54. When the centurion and those were who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Apparently, people have disputed, you know, did they say this was the Son of God? Did they say this was a Son of God? Um, it's hard to know, but you get the idea that this execution team, they had done this a few times. This was not new to them, but this was no ordinary resurrection, or rather crucifixion. They could at least testify to that, that this was something different. Of course, they've also witnessed his conversations with the thieves on the cross and so forth. Uh, so this is their testimony. This was the Son of God, and I think we can take it as, as it's written there. Um, it's important to note who the witnesses were. Now, for the last three years, his disciples have been there. There's been a contingent from Galilee following him around as rabbi. And then, of course, we know in the last weeks, um, there's been huge throngs of people. Many of those, no doubt, had fallen away. But there were certainly plenty of uh, people looking at the spectacle of who Jesus was and just, you know, his amazing rise in popularity on Palm Sunday. And then, gosh, within a week, he's being crucified, the most horrible of deaths. Uh, this would have been a big deal even then. So there were witnesses, and we have not the disciples, but we have these Gentiles, these centurions, uh, and, and the guards under him uh, being one of the first witnesses of, of what was happening, that this was no ordinary execution. And then at verse 55, it says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among them, whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and, Mary, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Uh, many women there follow, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. And something else I'd not really thought about. Um, you know, you're, when, when you don't have details, your mind fills in the blanks, right? You ever talk to somebody on the phone and you just get this picture of what they look like? And then you see them and it's like, no, that's not you. That's not who you look like. Um, in my mind, as Jesus is wandering around Galilee doing his miracles, I picture him and his, you know, college-age guys, late teenagers, kind of roaming around uh, doing all this stuff. Um, but... It wasn't like that. There was like a little entourage going on. The women were there 
probably prepping the food, taking care of them. You know, they were keeping the logistics going, um, which even today shouldn't be a big surprise, <laughs> especially as um, many people are making preparations for family things. Uh, I don't think it's being overly sexist to say that um, it's more likely that women are taking care of some of these things because they want it done properly. <laughs> there were also many women looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. So they had, they had been there the whole time. They had been there the whole time and then we get the, the description. Um, why would you include this notation of women. This would not have added a lot of weight to the story. You know, Matthew, of course, is writing sometime after all this has happened. He's writing primarily for a Jewish audience. We know that. Including women would not have made people, Jews especially, say, oh, wow, now there's some reliable witnesses. They would not have said that. The testimony of a woman was not considered to have a whole lot of weight. So the only reason to include that is if it was true. So in a weird kind of way, the fact that it's there makes it even more true than if they had said somebody else was with them. The Bible's cool like that. Verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So, what do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? Let me pull this up here. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, there was a prohibition against what was fixing to happen to Jesus. It says in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, if you were a Jew and you were convicted of a crime and you hang him on a tree, all of those things applied to Jesus. He couldn't stay there all night. So Joseph needs to get the body of Jesus. Now, was this typical? No, it was not. It, what was typical is when you got hung on a cross, you stayed there until the birds and the animals and everything else had had their way with you and the sun and everything else. You just hung there because you were being executed for a crime against the state and everybody was going to see it. It was not, the crucifixion itself wasn't good, and the afterwards was probably not good either. 
But here, we've got this dilemma. So, Joseph, also a disciple of Jesus. We also know a little bit more about him from John's Gospel. You can turn there if you want. You don't need to. It's John chapter 19. It says, this is verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Now the thing about... Um, and I think it's Luke that tells us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of this governing body uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, he would have been in the minority, of course, to even claim to be a follower of Jesus. Um, hence, you know, the, the secrecy involved. But, um, but that's, that's what it was. Now, this also fulfilled a prophecy. Um, I didn't put the reference, but in Isaiah, there's a reference that um, although he'll be crucified with the poor, um, he'll be buried with the rich. And so a prophecy uh, fulfilled there, and that's a paraphrase. I'll see if I can put the actual reference in the, in the notes. In any event, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus, and again, this was not a normal thing. So he must have had some pretty high standing or Pilate realized he really wasn't executed for crimes against Caesar or both to even give him permission to take Jesus down from the cross. From other accounts, we also know that Pilate was a little surprised that he might have already been dead uh, because... It wasn't uncommon for people to linger on for a while. So that was, we know that part of the account as well. So it says, he went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Verse 59, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Um, Pastor um, and teacher N.T. Wright, in his little commentary um, on this passage, he says, um, I'm not a very good chess player, but I've played some people who are good in chess. And he said, it's not uncommon that you know, you see some random move that you can't make sense of. But then a few moves later, you realized why they made that move, because now you're in trouble. And that the reason for that seemingly random move really had a reason. He makes the point here that the reason we're giving all this detail about the burial of Jesus is because it's a setup for the resurrection of Jesus and also for Matthew... Um, starting to already um, lay out the evidence to undercut potential objections to the resurrection in the future. So, so here we have um, 
Joseph taking the body, wrapping it in clean linen shroud, putting it in his own new tomb. So we have a high-ranking official going to Pilate. Pilate had to testify, in essence, to the death of Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given him the body because they wouldn't have taken him down if he wasn't dead yet. We know that also from other passages, uh, also in John, that um, this would have taken some help. Nicodemus was part of the help. Uh, we know that in order to properly prepare the body and to put all the spices and everything, uh, it took 75 pounds of spices, which you could imagine, I don't know, if you bought spices lately, even as cheap as things are nowadays, I mean, spices are expensive. You, it, it costs about five bucks for a little thing of black pepper. I don't know what 75 pounds of spices would have back, been back then, but it, you would think it had been an ex, just an enormous sum of money, an enormous sum of money for 75 pounds of, of that. So when it says he was a rich man, I'm thinking he was a very rich man. Joseph took the body, wrapped in clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. So this is interesting. So back in the day... Um, when you had a tomb, it was maybe a family tomb, the person would be laid, uh, you'd maybe go in, there might be a couple of different ledges cut into this cave, the body would be laid there, decomposition would happen. At some point down the road, a few years, you would go in, collect the bones, and put them in a container, kind of ossuary, that would hold the bones. And then those would be, you know, set aside. And so they found, uh, archaeology's found lots of these little containers, stone containers filled with bones. Um, and then you reuse that shelf. You reuse that portion of the tomb again. Here we have that this is a brand new tomb. And it says... Joseph Arimathea, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. So, you know, you can make this what you want. I found it interesting, um, uh, Pastor Wiersbe, that we uh, often refer to, um, he had an interesting speculation. He said, well, he was so rich, Joseph Arimathea was so rich, that he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have cut his tomb out in a place so close to Golgotha where people were, you know, executed. That he would have built his tomb in a more prominent place, uh, more befitting of himself. So he speculates that, that he knew that Jesus was going to need a tomb and that he cut it for Jesus. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, but it was interesting to see how far he went with that. In any event, it's a brand new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. So this eliminates a lot of things, right? This eliminates, oh, you know, maybe Jesus was buried in the wrong tomb. I mean, a new unused tomb. You ever seen rock that's been weathered for a while versus rock that's fresh? 
you can tell the difference. You don't have to be a craftsman to tell the difference. This would have been obvious to everyone. Oh, that's Joseph's tomb. He just had it cut, you know. Um, it's going to be there for him down the road. So again, Matthew's putting in all this detail because he knows it's going to be needed. All right, he laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And you guys have seen this configuration, this, uh, this groove cut in front of the, the tomb with the stone that could be rolled down. Gravity makes it easy to close it and makes it very hard to, to open it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They've, they've made their way and have been observing all of this so they know exactly where the tomb was and which tomb it was. Verse 62. The next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Ironically, the disciples didn't really get it that Jesus was, or maybe they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, but the opposition caught that. <laughs> they, they, they were like, hey, he promised this. You know, it would be pretty sneaky for the disciples, surely they remember this, to go steal Jesus' body and then tell everybody he's raised from the dead. So we need to... Again, there's this big game of chess that's going on. We need to go and make sure that doesn't happen. So they go to they go to Pilate and make this request. Hey, go seal this up because um, we want to make sure that he's still there three days from now. And basically, Pilate says, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Now, some people take this to be a real cynical thing. Like Pilate saying, look. Seriously, you guys were so afraid of Jesus when he was alive, and now you're still afraid of him, those he's dead? Yeah, yeah, go, go take care of that yourself. They had, they had temple guards, and so some people have said this was a temple guard. Some people have said, no, these were Pilate's guards. It doesn't really say in my Bible. But there's some evidence that it was probably the temple guards. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So, where are we? Jesus was crucified. Jesus was really, really dead. Jesus was taken down from the cross by permission of Pilate, who in essence was saying, yeah, it's fine. I know it wasn't against the state. He's taken to this new tomb that everybody knows where it was because it was a brand new tomb. And we've got women who were sitting there and so now we've got the women who are watching and Joseph and Nicodemus. Everybody knows where the tomb was. He's wrapped with 75 pounds of spices and wrapped in linen. Now, have you ever seen how they will use basically glorified saran wrap to secure a whole pallet of stuff? Yes. <laughs> I mean, saran wrap, one sheet, you can poke your finger through it. But three or four layers, if they were wrapped around me, I could not break them, and I don't think any of you guys could either. You just can't. 
So, and if you put 75 pounds around me and wrap me up, I'm not busting out of that myself, especially if you do the swoon theory like he was so weak, everybody thought he was dead, and now he's going to just have this amazing strength to bust out of all that. I mean, some of this stuff is really ridiculous. I mean, you occasionally hear about somebody who makes it to the funeral home and wasn't fully dead. I mean, you do hear those stories. I don't know if I've heard of any stories where the person rallies and is amazing like a year later. Uh, no. They were, they were mostly dead. And they weren't busting out on their own accord. In any event, that's where we are. He's in the grave. Everybody knows he's dead. Everybody knows where he is. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. How did they know where the tomb was? Because they were just there. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Okay. <laughs> you know, now, Mary's Mary, the, 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 the two Marys, they have seen miracles, right? They were there for three years. They have been seeing miracles. In spite of that, you got to think, this was, a, this was big. This was really big. Another earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and, <laughs> I love this part, sat on it, Right? <laughs> It's almost like, you know, you could picture this angel of the Lord coming down and with the sword drawn and, you know, look at what I just did. But no, it's like, okay, here's a stone and I'm just going to hang out. <laughs> I mean, it's really kind of funny. Um, it got, you know, God doesn't always do things like you expect. Descended from heaven, came, rolled it back to stone and sat on it. It is kind of funny if you picture it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Makes sense. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. If that doesn't kind of give you chills, then I read it wrong. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So, if an angel tells you to do something, and you saw this, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to do it, right? I mean, oh, oh yeah, I, I'm going to cancel that other thing I had going on. Uh, we were going to meet, you know, the other Marys for, yeah, no. Okay, we're off. So, what did it say? So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Even though he said, don't be afraid, yet they had fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And on their way to do that, what happens? And behold, Jesus met them and said, hey. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here. So says, greetings. But I mean, that probably would be like, Hey. Hey, y'all. 
this is the most amazing thing in the whole verse. And they came up and took hold of his feet instead of running and freaking out like probably you would have expected. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Of course, I'm being funny here. They were recognizing, wow, you know, all this is coming back to them now. All the teachings, everything, you know. Because they were there when, you know, over and over he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave, you know. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Wow. Um, everything in Matthew has been leading up to this. Everything has been leading up to this. And, you know, here we are. Um, We know the theories that people have put forth about debunking the resurrection, right? I talked about one, the swoon theory. I thought it was interesting. The resurrection of Jesus, I mean, is there anybody who really hasn't heard that story? I mean, you could pull somebody off the street. Well, I don't know. People are pretty stupid right now. I was going to say, you could probably pull people off the street and ask them what Easter was about. 20 years ago, you probably, everybody would have known. I'm not even so sure that's true anymore, but most people have heard the general notion that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, most people have heard that. It's so pervasive that it's almost mandatory that you kind of deal with that if you are some other religion. You got to explain it. So I was thinking, well, okay, what, how do people explain it? So um, the Muslims, they believe in Jesus, right? They think he was like a prophet. They, they don't get the birthright, as you would imagine. They believe he was a man. Um, they believe, let me see if I can get this right. I don't want to get my people confused. Yeah. <laughs> the Muslims believe Jesus did not die on the cross but was rescued from God. Oh, yeah. They believe this, that somebody that looked like Jesus was substituted. Like, that's got to be easy, right? Here's this guy who the whole city was worshiping for a week, and now all of a sudden they don't recognize him? Anyway, um, they say that... Um, that Jesus didn't go to the cross willingly, that he didn't die there. Somebody substitute him, um, and uh, just somebody else who looked like Jesus died. And, uh, you know, they speculate on who that was. Um, it says, God changed the face of the crucified man to resemble the face of Jesus. Right? I mean, <laughs> like, okay, if you believe in a God who can change the face of somebody is it that big of a step to think that anyway. Job's witnesses uh, they don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead they say it was just a spirit right they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus so they kind of have a little trouble when 
you know, the disciples, what do they say? Oh, they thought they had seen a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Look it. Flesh and bones. Flesh and bones. I thought it was interesting. He doesn't say flesh and blood. <laughs> he gave his blood for us. It says, he says flesh and bone. I mean, yeah, flesh and bones. Um, so to believe what the Jehovah's Witness, you've got to believe that Jesus was basically misleading his disciples on purpose. They say that he, oh, he just manifested himself physically, just kind of like angels have done, and it wasn't really him. So really, you've got to basically assume that Jesus was lying to his disciples. See, some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. One of the most interesting things I saw was what the Jews believe about the resurrection. So, of course, most of the, the Jews have basically said, yeah, Jesus, we're just not into that. I mean, they just don't even, you know, no. But this is really interesting. Apparently about, um, I guess about 25 years ago, there was this weird, to the Jews, but there was this Jewish sect that was basically worshiping this rabbi who died, and they claimed that he was the Messiah and that he had come back from the dead and he was going to be their Messiah. Well, a lot of the Jews got together and said, no, we don't believe in a Messiah that dies and then rises from the dead to become Messiah. We, that's, not, that's kind of not the Jewish thing, right? And it started up a ruckus. Well, then there's this apparently very well-respected rabbi who comes behind that and says, well, actually, no. You could, there's nothing in Jewish teaching that prohibits that. Well, you can imagine that was hard for some people to swallow. So I think it's interesting. You, know, you never know what God's doing with the Jews, but at least here was this very well-respected rabbi who said, yeah, actually, no, I don't see anything in our teaching that would prevent having a Messiah who died and rose again to be our Messiah. It's kind of cool. Ultimately, um, a lot of parallels. Uh, these faiths have had to come up with a story of the resurrection and how to explain it. As Christians, of course, we should kind of also have that story, right? We should have a before and after story. We should have a, here is my old life before Jesus, and here's my new life after Jesus story. We should have that. And we should kind of be able to tell it, just like Matthew told the one about Jesus. Um, eyewitness testimony. There's so many eyewitnesses there. They make a difference. They make a difference, and we should, we should also have that. Um, another big point. The veil was torn. Jesus wants us to see him. Um, and I think uh, the, the big thing is there's just so much evidence uh, of not just Jesus' birth, but Jesus' resurrection. And uh, one person said, there's probably as much evidence to the resurrection as there was to the finer points of Napoleon. Um, you know, so if you look at just history for history's sake, it gets to be uh, hard to deny. Not that people haven't tried, but you can kind of figure out the truth of something by 
how crazy of an idea it takes to try to argue against it. You know, and some of these just are so illogical. All right. So next week is the so what part. All right. Jesus came, died, rose again. And then we get the, okay, yes, yeah, so what? All right? That's for all of us to answer. All right, we'll stop there. Comments? Questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story, this amazing account of how it all came to, how it all came to be. And Father... Like Paul says, you know, for Christians, if there's no resurrection, then what are we doing? But because there is a resurrection, then we can have so much. We can have an inheritance. We can have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can have guidance along the way. We can have uh, peace with each other. We can have peace with you, and we can look forward to an eternal home. Father, we thank you that now and then you give us glimpses of some of that by your grace, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your son. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.